This is CliffCentral.com. Worksman's Attorneys is a proudly South African corporate and commercial law firm with over 100 years of experience. With over 200 lawyers practicing in over 22 diverse areas of law, they're able to contend with current, topical matters and use their expertise to your advantage. In this series of podcasts, we will explore how the law affects you. Welcome to another episode in a series on uh, some of the things that worksmen's in particular are involved in with regard to the law and the uh, application of that law and how it affects you. And I think uh, we've covered a number of interesting subjects so far. One of the subjects which always comes up in South Africa, and it seems to be uh, something which is inherently South African, uh, no matter how far you go back into our history, labor law is something that pops its head up and either creates huge controversy or at very least a lot of conversation and sometimes quite active and uh, and quite passionate conversation. And certainly there is no uh, darth of that kind of content with respect to the stuff that we're interested in talking to Jacques van Weyck about today. He is a director in labor and unemployment from the Cape Town Office of Worksmen's. Jacques, it's a pleasure to meet you and it's a pleasure to talk to you this morning. Thanks for coming to spend some time with us. Thank you for having me. So, first of all, uh, labor law is, is, is really a, a labor of love for you in some ways, isn't it? It is. I've, Something I've you've been involved in. I practiced this, this area of law um, since uh, completing my articles. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that's about 20 odd years that I've been doing this. So I've seen the evolution of employment law from our former employment law under the 1956 Act to the uh, introduction of our revolutionary new Labor Relations Act uh, in 1996. What is the regulatory framework in South Africa and how complicated is it? I often hear people talking about, oh, we're the most regulated labor law environment in the world. Is that an uh, is that an exaggeration? Is an overstatement of, of of the reality, or has that got some some space that that is occupied by the truth in, in statements like that? I think you can't ignore our history when you consider where the Labor Relations Act should be pos- positioned in South mm-hmm. Africa. Um, it was one of the first uh, pieces of legislation to be introduced uh, in the under the new regime. It, uh, it flows directly from the Constitution. So unlike many other countries, uh, the right to fair labor practice is enshrined in the Bill of Rights. So it's quite unusual. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Labor Relations Act is subject only to the Constitution. It trumps all other acts except the Constitution. So it's extremely powerful. Uh, it, uh, it was a codification of a lot of decisions by our, our old industrial court, uh, which, which operated under the 1956 Act. It, uh, it, it legalized, in a sense, um, strike action, which was, which was always a contentious issue. Mm. It made it simpler for people to exercise their right to strike. Um, it borrows from um, some of the first world jurisdictions. Uh, it borrows from the Industrial Labor Organization, the ILO. Um, it uh, creates fairly complex uh, dispute resolution processes. Um, so in all respects, a first world but complex uh, system that has been introduced. And, and the context of all of this is that for a very long time in our history, there weren't any labor relations. People who worked for a 
for an, a certain amount of money would do whatever they were told. There wasn't a lot of protection. Strikes had very much a political character as much as they did a, a social or economic character. And so for us, it isn't just labor relations. There's also a lot of emotive stuff that comes into these discussions, right? Absolutely. Uh, to, to, to elevate the right to strike to a Bill of Rights constitutional right gives you some indication mm. of the political sensitivity around this. We went from a, from a situation where workers were exploited, mm. where they didn't have the right to strike, where they were subject to incarceration for striking in the early days, to a system which um, rectified that. So it's a swinging of the pendulum, in a sense, from very little protection to significant protection. We, we, we're in a time now where perhaps um, that pendulum that you, you've mentioned to me before is swinging again. We, we look at labor strikes, and at the moment there is this, uh, this ESCOM situation, which is very much on people's minds. Mm. But it could be any week in South Africa that there's a strike in some sector. Mm. It's mining, it's uh, metal workers, it's people in, in, in manufacturing, it's teachers. It seems to me that we almost have a, an, an unhealthy relationship with the need to strike um, or, or with that as the only possible way to resolve a situation when for many people it should be the last tool in the shed when you've run out of other tools. I mean, how do you feel about that? Have we got an oversupply of strikes? We have, uh, we have significant numbers of strikes. Annually we have what we refer to colloquially as strike season, which, mm. which indicates to you what's become the norm. So at a certain point every year, we all anticipate uh, that strikes will start happening. Um, strikes also typically in South Africa have a violent element to it, um, something which is, which is very concerning. Uh, it concerns the public, it concerns employers, and I'm sure many, many employees. So um, unlike Europe where you have uh, centralized bargaining and everybody sits down very courteously and civilly around the table and they negotiate and they have a, an agreement that applies to all, we haven't reached that point yet. We still uh, are very enterprise-based uh, in, in regard to wage issues and so on. So one business will fight an issue or maybe a sector. But the level of centralized bargaining that you need to avoid strikes just hasn't evolved yet in South Africa. And you mentioned the violent element to this. There are also the threats and intimidation that occur for people who aren't even necessarily involved with the union, which, uh, which also seems to happen more often than not. Yes, it does. Uh, we have a very high incidence of violent strikes, yeah. violent in the sense of uh, harm to people uh, who, who may not be willing to strike, uh, who want to work, uh, to the public who want to contract or transact with the, the employer that's, that's being the victim or the subject matter of that strike action. Um, the strikes often boil over into into the public domain. So even though you and I have nothing to do with the strike, we may find litter on the streets or we may find roads blocked. Or So that is unfortunately… A property damage. Property damage, vehicle damage, and so on. So strikes tend to, 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 to end up at that point. Um, and what, what I've seen in my experience is that it's often a very small group of strikers. So I, I'm not suggesting that all workers in this country are ready to resort to violence. That's not the case. It's typically a small group. 
And, that, and sometimes there are even agitators who might, according to the unions anyway, a lot of the time, might not even have anything to do with the strike, who are troublemakers, who come in and make them look bad. Sometimes that's also a convenient excuse, but yes. it does happen. Hard to determine whether it's true, but yeah. in, in some cases, yes, that does happen. There are opportunistic uh, people who join a strike and see an opportunity, um, you know, when – Shop windows are broken yeah. and looting takes place. Then, uh, then um, typically the unions will not will not take responsibility for that, and certainly neither will their members. So it's very hard, though, to determine in the heat of the moment who's responsible for what. Our courts have, however, increasingly said that they will be holding unions liable for the conduct of their employees and their members during these strikes. So that has, in a sense, um, put them on terms. To say you need to ensure that strikes are as they were intended to be. They are intended to be peaceful. Tamed to a degree. Yeah. Um, what does the new labor relations, uh, what, what do the new amendments to the Labor Relations Act mean for strikes? Well, there's the, there are a raft of changes that have been proposed. Uh, one of them is to the Labor Relations Act, and it, and it has been heavily criticized by, by trade unions because they see it as an attempt to curtail the right to strike. So the right to strike is a, is an, is a right which is protected uh, vigorously by trade unions. It, it's something that they fought for for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, uh, employers are saying we can't afford to lose um, property, vehicles. We can't afford to be the victims of violent strikes. You're entitled to your, your strike. Follow the procedure. It's very easy to 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 end end up with a, a protected strike. It's called. Um, don't resort to wildcat strikes or to unlawful conduct during a protected strike. So the the amendments are looking at when does the strike is it no longer functional is the word that's used no young, no longer functional for collective bargaining and when that happens there's a there's a indication that a a committee a commission may very well determine that that strike is no longer functional and that may actually change what was previously a lawful strike to an unlawful strike. Well, I would imagine that it would be in the interests of someone who thought that a strike may do them some harm, whether it's financially or otherwise, to engage with a lawyer such as yourself to determine whether or not a strike is still functional and thereby have it declared illegal and put an end to it. Absolutely. I mean, there's yeah. there, there's no doubt that it uh, it it – to some extent, the concerns raised by trade unions are valid that mm. this, this process may very well then be abused to neuter them, to hobble them in their attempt to exercise their collective power. At the end of the day, when it comes to wages, uh, that's the only real way that a collective can bring pressure to bear on capital to increase wages. I just want to get hold of the context of, of South Africa's current labor market and what's actually going on. Do we have any idea of how many people in South Africa, by percentage anyway, are employed and then how many of those employed people are unionized? Uh, Even if it's a ballpark figure, uh, I'm trying to sort of draw the the picture because I know that we've got a much bigger unemployment problem than we do a labor relations problem. I can express a view on the trend. So so the, the, the trend of unemployment, especially amongst the youth, is on the rise which is alarming. Mm. So there's a, a generation of um, first-time employees who aren't finding employment. Are um, they not finding employment because there just isn't employment? Or are, they not, are, are we not as a country able to find enough candidates for the jobs that we need? 
I think it's probably both. I think there's a there's a there's a mixture of both. That's very worrying. Yeah. The 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 um when you leave school and you are unable to to find the education at school or at a tertiary level, um, that's the first problem. The second problem is to the extent that business is not able to absorb mm-hmm. these increased number of employees that are entering or potential employees that are entering the labor market, that then creates a problem. You have a you have a, a generation of people who are unable to find employment. That is that is a problem. And then unionization? Well, trade unionization, it has been reported, is on the decline. There are a number of unions that are in trouble, um, that are, are in financial difficulty. We know that they sort of turn on each other occasionally, as we've seen in mining anyway. We've seen it, and we've seen a split uh, in Casato with a oh. breakaway uh, with Mr. Varvey and so on. So, yes, there's, there is that that's happening as well. So... There's a concern that um, that the the trade union organi- the trade union movement in South Africa is is losing um, steam, which is which is a problem because employees and a functioning trade union organisation um, is important for any economy. And they've spent years building relationships. Correct, Correct. absolutely. So there, there's no doubt that there are a number of employees in our country who are still not being treated fairly. And um, trade unions play a very important role in servicing those needs. Can we move on to retrenchments for a minute? Because this is this is an area where I think people often engage with the law and where they need to know the law. And because our labor relations legislation is a lot more complex mm. than in most countries. Mm. I mean, you were telling me a story about how in America – you can only take so many personal possessions to work that you could fit them in a box because you could be re- retrenched and told on that day and you'll have to vacate your desk and you'll be given a box and whatever doesn't fit in the box is your problem. So that's correct. I mean, and, and they can literally retrench you in that kind of space. There are jurisdictions, <clears throat> we call jurisdictions or countries, where, where the, the employer's ability to respond to economic challenges is is paramount. Um that in other words, they don't even have to explain to you why they they're firing you. They, they just say you're out, so. like Donald Trump did on The Apprentice. <laughs> just say you're fired, yes, yes. and then they're out. Yes, you could, absolutely. Wow. And in this country, that's obviously, not that's not possible at all. No. Now, yeah, in fact, um, a, a dismissal for what we call operational requirements, otherwise known as retrenchment, is probably one of the most complex forms of dismissal that you can have. In fact, uh, the Labor Relations Act has a has a sections dedicated to this type of dismissal, whereas it doesn't have in regard to other forms of dismissal. So we have we have typically Do you know why that is? Well because of the fact that it is so uh it's it's a no fault dismissal. So the employee's done nothing wrong. Mm. Employees come to work on time, has done his or her job and for reasons completely beyond their control, they face the loss of an of employment. Mm. So in order to um Require employers to go the extra mile before doing that. That should be your last resort. Right. And there are sections in the Labor Relations Act which set out a process that must be followed for small or large-scale retrenchments, things that the employer has to do before ending up at that point. Um, an obligation to consult with trade unions who represent affected employees or with employees themselves. A period, time periods that must be complied with. There's a, there's provision that the CCMA can get involved to facilitate large scale retrenchment. So it's a highly regulated area in our law. But surely if a business can't carry on, 
employing 10 people and they need to cut it down to five. Otherwise, they're going to go out of business. It's in the interest not only of the five who will remain, but of everybody that the business remain in, in operation, uh, that, that there's almost an implicit understanding from a maths and, yes. and, and ledger point of view yes. that this is what has to happen. The, quest, the question, though, about that formula is, is the answer to the financial challenge getting rid of people? Maybe the answer is to reduce remuneration for a period of time. Or hours. Maybe reduce hours. Mm. Maybe f- explore other cost-cutting exercises. So the law is aimed at saying, please consider all of those before you before you fire a human being and leave them without employment, where they've done nothing wrong. So yeah, but, that's the that's the issue. But do of, we have do we have a problem understanding why employment takes place? I mean, at a political mm-hmm. level now, and and this is this is philosophy. I want to get back to the law in a second, yes. but I, I need to pick your brain while I have your fine brain here because you've thought about these things a lot more yeah. than I ever will. Mm-hmm. So, do we have a problem understanding why employment exists? Do we imagine? in South Africa broadly, yes. and particularly in our, our political elites, that employment is some kind of a right, that it's something that people, it just it keeps them busy and they earn a salary. Mm. Not that it is to be engaged in production in some way, in adding value to society in some way, and being rewarded for that with money. So I'll be very careful in my response because I'm now speaking for every <laughs> single employee in the, in the country. Um, I mean, I, I, I do think that the cold, hard approach to one plus one equals two from an employment point of view, which may apply in America, for instance. Does not apply. Not necessarily apply in South Africa. There's a, there's a recognition that employment um, of one person um, enriches a range of other people around them, mm-hmm. not just them, that it affects communities, that it affects a sense of worth and so on, that, uh, that uh, it is not a right, but certainly it's something that must be looked after. Okay. But not, it's a priority. Not just by the employee. The employee has an obligation to look after their employment too. But employers are asked to think about terminating employment as a last resort when they're in financial difficulties or before considering economic, uh, uh, technological changes and so on. Well, that, that brings into the discussion the idea of mechanization, the idea of, of robots, the idea of machines eventually taking people's jobs. A lot of people are very nervous about yes. this, particularly in a world where technology is advancing so fast that we're able to replace human labor in some cases, sometimes human skills and sometimes even human thinking in, in certain ways and sometimes better by the machines than, than us. Mm. Uh, this makes people nervous because they imagine that they won't be useful in a future economy. Has that come into the application of and the promulgation of law in South African labor? It absolutely has. Uh, we just spoke about retrenchments. One mm. of the reasons the law recognizes a retrenchment can happen is for technological reasons. So an employer who wants to introduce technology that's going to cause the redundancy of posts has to follow the same procedure that he would have or she would have to follow if needing to retrench people for financial reasons. Hmm. So operational requirements, that term in the law, is defined as including technological issues. Hmm. So if you're going to introduce a machine that effectively makes 20 people redundant, before you do so, you have to start consulting with those 20 people. Say, look, I'm contemplating doing this. Is there some other way I can achieve my operational goal 
without the loss of 20 people. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily not introducing the technology. It may mean training people to operate the technology. And instead of just throwing away 20 people, maybe limiting that loss to 15 people or 10 people and upskilling other people to operate their technology. While those may be admirable in respect of keeping people employed, Mm. those things can sometimes make it very hard to run a business. And they are sometimes even obfuscatory Mm. in their nature. Now, I'm not coming at this as a hard capitalist. Mm. In fact, I don't want us to get too much into the philosophy of this. But is it a complex process to go through? If I found a machine that was able to do what five employees here do, um, it's almost my duty as a responsible business owner to put that technology to action as quickly as possible. Mm. If I came to you and said, I'm going to do this, how can, how can I make this as painless as possible for the business and for the people who I'm going to have to retrench? Where do you even begin? You would have to begin where you begin with any retrenchment process. You'd have to begin with a consultation exercise. You'd have to, before you made the decision to do anything that causes the loss of employment – loss of job security or fundamental change to terms and conditions of employment. You'd have to engage with those people who you potentially will have to fire because of this introduction of this technology. That's it doesn't mean you can't do it. Sure. So, so the law doesn't require that you have to reach consensus or agreement with them. You don't have to have an agreement. It's not a negotiation. It's a consultation. This is a difficult place to legislate, and it's a difficult place for us to find out, and there must be a lot of case law that has helped to make this instructive for people who wouldn't have the faintest idea. But you can't – you can say someone must engage with a member of staff. Mm. They must consult with a member of staff. But you can't really prescribe the nature of that consultation. A nice – friendly boss who really cares yes. will always do a better job of that than someone who is a mercenary who's only interested in the bottom line yes. and who doesn't give a damn about how many hungry mouths are at home. So the law requires that you, that you do it in good faith, that you engage in what's called joint consensus seeking consultation and that you not pay lip service to the law to the extent that that can be proven at a later stage. So if you're a, a, if you're a, a, a a nasty employer and you, mm. you say, I'm just going to tick the boxes, mm. you, you will come up short at the end of the day. That's interesting because that's almost the law trying to regulate the kind of communication that humans must have with each other, yes. which is interesting because it can get quite gray, right? Yes. It, it's not black and white. Correct. There's no, there's no, there's no clear definition on what consultation means. It's, it's simply our courts have grappled with this idea mm. and have said you must approach it with an open mind and have looked at, well, there was this proposal on the table. Uh, why didn't you give it serious consideration? But even the courts are reluctant to go so far as to say to an employer, well, that wasn't a good business decision or it was a bad decision. The court will say as long as the business decision was bona fide in the circumstances, after you'd consulted with an open mind with the trade union or the employees, then the prerogative still lies with the employer at the end of the day. Um, it is, but it is a complex area. and, and uh, I think it's fascinating yeah. because what you're really doing is you're also trying to figure out what someone else is thinking yes. a lot of the time. Yes. Um, did they have malice or forethought? Did they intend to employ this person with the ultimate goal yes. of getting rid of them once they'd served a certain very short purpose? So, so the easy example is where a, a viable proposal is put on the table. And just ignored out of hand. Ah, okay. That would be an easy example. But you're right. When you get closer to the center where, well, was it a good proposal? Should we have considered that? Would it have worked? 
then the judge's position gets a bit more difficult because wow. you know, and yours in trying to prove anything. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean that is the that is the trick. I mean you could say, well we have a recording of a telephone call in which you can hear the tone is, you know, not yes. particularly conciliatory. Yes. Uh, but but that's an interpretive thing and it gets very messy. Absolutely. Um the the <laughs> the, 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 the I suppose experience here is the, is the best ally you could have. Correct. I mean the the successful challenge to that where you're acting for an employee is to say, well, there was a clearly a viable alternative and if you had selected this alternative you would have saved five mm. instead of not saving the five. And for that reason the dismissal was 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 unfair and they should never have been dismissed in the first place. How busy is the CCMA in South Africa? It's extremely busy. It's, uh, I read recently it's the, the busiest dispute resolution forum in the world um, at the moment. So in the world? In the world. What are most of the, the disputes about? Mostly the disputes are about unfair dismissals for misconduct. So, so that's your dismissal for theft or late coming or, or assault, that type of dismissal. So it's, it's not the retrenchment. That's not, that's not great. Yeah. No, it's not. What does that tell us about our labor force? Well, it, 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 it I don't mean to be controversial or glib about this, but if that many people are appearing that it's keeping the CCMA that busy. It doesn't mean they're all guilty, though. No, I mean, no, I think sure. we must accept sure, that a lot sure, of them of are, are, are reinstated. Absolutely. Uh, what it does mean is that… Uh, is there's, that a, there's a very big gap in trust between employer and employee if this is happening. It At means that, that a lot of people, unfortunately, um, are dismissed for 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 not conducting themselves in the proper way. Now, um, you know, the, the the figure about how many are reinstated retrospectively or reinstated is not yeah. is not available. But the the point is that uh, that is the most common form of dismissal. It may be that employers see that as the easiest way of dismissing employees. You see, that's, that's the other side. So it's a, st- a statistic we must be careful of, I think. Um, let's just talk quickly about minimum wage because mm. that's something which comes up often in South Africa. And I, 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 don't know, I don't know if I even have a position on this. I'm not well informed mm. enough. And perhaps you can help me in order to, to reach a point where I'm ready to say this is my yeah. opinion on it. Maybe many of us feel this yes. way. Um, it's become a bit of a political football as well. Yes. What's your what's your take on the current status of the minimum wage discussion, of of where you think it might go, and what would be optimal in your opinion based on your experience? This is only your. I'm, mm. I'm asking particularly mm. here for your opinion on this, and then uh, how we could better run discussions like this where we've fallen perhaps short of the best expectation here. Yeah, the 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 national minimum wage will be. Uh, enacted. There's no doubt about it. Okay. It's, it's it's at the national, uh, the NCOP. Mm-hmm. So it's gone through the House, the Assembly. Um, it, there are regulations that have been issued. Um, uh, they are up for discussion and uh, public comment. So it will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, the question I think that everyone has is what will the employer's response be to this? The regulations make provision for an exemption process where you can apply for an exemption. And um, I've had a number of queries already on, on what process must be followed. It's going to be quite a, a streamlined online process. It's, it's quite uh, forward thinking and it's technologically advanced. That's good. Yeah, it's going to be online. It's, uh, it will be limited for 12 months. So your exemption is not forever. It's for 12 months. Uh, you have to submit a whole range of things and you need the input from organized labor, which is good. So wh- how employers will respond 
Um, that's uh, we'll have to see. But uh, you can look at uh, at uh, other examples in the farming sector. When a minimum wage was introduced in the farming sector, it did lead, unfortunately, to retrenchments because there are going to be employers who won't be able to afford that wage. At the same time, we have a wage which is which is pitifully low. Yeah, it's what how much? 20, 20 rand 20, an hour. Yeah, 20 it's rand it's an very, hour. very low. I mean, the net result of that sort of increase is people who will still be earning, uh, most people would say, below the poverty line. Mm. So so it's not – it's it's in. It points to a bigger problem, I think, and that is that there are low wages, there are many unskilled workers in this country who are struggling to survive, and that uh, this is aimed at, uh, at assisting them, I guess, and, in, and stimulating the economy. Um, social media. Yes. I, I assume um, I was talking to your colleague, Bernard Hotz, about how he has been assisted by Social media yes. in many ways because it's a source of tremendous evidence. Absolutely. Um, and I, I can imagine that even in labor, this is sometimes a very helpful thing to resort to when you you have two sides of a story and you're not sure which one is true. Yes. And perhaps there's a third version which is the most accurate yes. and that's usually the technology because yes. why would it lie? Yes. Um, I'm interested though in – before we get into that because that might come into how you – you, you would take on a case and what your line of reasoning yes. might be and how you would go about trying to get your client's best version of, of events. But first of all, employees and, and the difference that social media and that the internet has made for an employee applying for a job, keeping a job, staying within the rules during the time that they're there in terms of social media and everything else. Um, I've heard lots of stories about people who are very draconian about what they allow and don't allow on social media in terms of their employees. I've heard about employees who insist on their freedom of expression and often get it. Um, do, do you think we're making some headway here? It's a very new area of law. It's extremely new and it's, it's, um, it's, uh, the, the way it's developing is very interesting. Um, so in our country and with our history and our, and our background, there are certain things that one would expect everyone knew they should never do. Yet you find um, employees making racist statements on social media platforms. Um, aside from the fact that it's abhorrent and shouldn't be permitted, mm-hmm. the, the fact that they make those statements and, and then identified as being associated with or connected to an employer will almost always – I would think in a right-thinking employer's mind, lead to a question as to whether I should still employ this person. And there would be, there would be dismissal Absolutely. on the grounds of well, reputational uh, damage, correct. brand damage. So correct. Absolutely. I mean, threat to the business. Well, an employer must decide whether they're going to tolerate an employee who makes a racist statement Surely on a social platform. Surely not. And I cannot I, I, imagine. I, I don't know that there's one company correct. in South Africa that would stand up I for that. I cannot imagine. Correct. I can't imagine that there will be anyone who will tolerate that. Yeah. So, so it's a new area. Um, employees um, sometimes regard it as a private space. Mm-hmm. It's time that employees learn. That because you are publishing and broadcasting, in a sense, to a wider media, um, you must be very careful what you say. Because it will come back and hurt you if you say something which is unlawful, patently unlawful, mm-hmm. um, and you cause reputational harm to your employer. So it's, it, the, it is just clearly the same as standing on a soapbox in front of your employer's premises and making statements which which – 
bring them into disrepute. That, that, maybe that's the test you should adopt before pressing send. Yeah. So, would you say this to your boss's face? If my face? employer read this now, oh. what would they do? Um, tell me when it comes to applying for jobs, mm. um, which are scarce. We've talked about unemployment already. Not enough, I should mm. uh, guess, but we've, we've discussed it at very least. When you're applying for a job, uh, employers now look at your social media. They look at your history online. It's the best background information check that yes. you ever have. Well, uh, and you're volunteering this information. Absolutely. So we 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 we've, we live in an age <laughs> where we unfortunately have CV fraud, something that uh, employers are, are increasingly concerned about. There's there's also um, concern about the veracity of certificates and degrees and so on. So employers, um, sophisticated employers, typically do background checks. Hmm. Um, because of the publicity that uh, that would be attracted to them employing the wrong person, or if there's a, a statement made in the past on on on, on the internet that, that might bring them dispute, they do look at these sort of things, and uh, it's very easy to Google someone, and uh, and so yes, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. You would want to see whether this person has uh, done something or stands for something or is associated with someone or something. That would cause harm to your business. Is it difficult to employ people in South Africa and is it difficult to dismiss people in South Africa? I don't think it's difficult to employ people in South Africa. We have a, we have a large number of people who are looking for employment. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a general statement. If you, if from a skilled point of view, there might be greater difficulty there. And that just may be because we aren't producing enough skilled or semi skilled people in this country and uh, certainly not in the right areas. Um, once employed, um, yes, we are a regulated society we, and, and our employment community is very regulated. But um, there are fairly straightforward rules that apply when it comes to dismissing someone. If someone has committed an offense, which is serious enough, and you follow the, the tenets of the law and the code of good practice, then it shouldn't pose any difficulty. As a, as a lawyer, do you find that there are constant updates to this law which you have to keep yourself abreast of? And does your team in particular, uh, the, the individuals who are dealing with, with ongoing labor law yes. cases, do they have to constantly be learning about the new you know, amendments to bills, new case law? Obviously, this is true for all law. Yes. But in, law, in labor law, do you think that it is, it, it's particularly uh, important? It, it, it is a very liquid Part of, it's, of our, it's a of our law, fascinating right? area of law. Yeah. We have uh, new law being made not only at parliament but also by our judges uh, and the constitutional court uh, because of the nature of employment law and because it often ends up involving a constitutional issue. Uh, we have this magnificent court with these very, very skilled and, and uh, intellectual and, in my view, um, uh, brilliant judges mm-hmm. issuing judgments from the constitutional court that we constantly have to keep up with. Um, there's case law on temporary employment services. Uh, you know the known we know them as labour brokers. Yes, uh, we're waiting for a for a very important judgment from the constitutional court. They heard it on the 22nd of February. It's going to have a significant impact on that sector, which is very important. So it's. Uh, Every day, something new happens. Why is it so hard for government to get rid of people who they've decided to get rid of? We hear about, you know, acting CEOs and acting 
commissioners and acting CFOs and people who are in positions and they're, they're on suspension for years at a time. Mm. Is that just an inability to make decisions? Is it that the law needs some kind of, of, of amendment or alteration? Or, or is there a much deeper problem? So what's happening in government is, is I can't say. But what I can say is the following, is that if you suspect someone has committed an offense – and you put them on precautionary suspension, it should not be for years. You should know at the time of suspension more or less what your concerns are. You should investigate them expeditiously, and you should convene an inquiry. Have the inquiry and make a finding. Is that what happens in the private sector? That's what happens in the private sector, and that's what the law contemplates. The law should be the same for both. The law is the same for both. That's what's contemplated. It's okay. not a process that, that should be stuck for years. It makes no sense. You either have a case or you don't. If you don't, unsuspend the employee, bring them back, let them carry on with their job. If you have a basis for dismissing them, proceed with your inquiry, present your evidence and so on. So it may be that there's a resource issue. It may be there's a problem gathering evidence. There may be that there's an issue about a will to do something about it. It may just not be convenient to do something about it. And I suppose we could speculate about yes, that could, for yeah. a long time. Yeah. Uh, you must have dealt with some really big cases. I mean, there must be some enormous quantum involved in some of these. Mm-hmm. Does that affect your um, excitement around it? It may not affect the actual the quality of work you'd, you'd think would be yes. consistent. But if you know you're doing some enormous case for a, a an individual or a company um, and, and there's a lot of money at stake, does that somehow make it much more – of a motivational in environment and, and the particulars of that case a lot more interesting? Well, it may be more interesting, but from, from an application point of view, um, my personal philosophy is whether I'm paying, whether it's a pro bono matter mm-hmm. for an employee who can't afford a lawyer. So we, we do that work. Uh, we, we have a pro bono office at the labor court where we, we take on work for indigent persons. We apply the same level of vigor, same level of intellect, same concern and care to resolving their matter as we would for any multinational. That's uh, just a, it's a, I would hope every lawyer applies, every attorney applies that professional conduct and ethic to, to their work. So it's, uh, whether there's a greater pressure on you when you're dealing with a 165 million rand claim, um, or versus a, a hundred thousand rand claim, well, I mean, there may be. But but from a point of view of applying your skill, you should apply the same level of care and 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 uh, skill to to every matter that comes across your desk. That's that's my duty. Well, I suppose we could also argue that if you if you do those pro bono matters, the, the way it could change people's lives might even be more significant Correct. than any amount of money to a Correct. rich person. It's all relative. It's all relative. It must be. It really must be fascinating to be involved in this stuff every day because you get to look at the underbelly of mm. South Africa's economy. Mm. You get to see the people who are being employed, the people who are employing those people, what makes the wheels turn. It must give you tremendous insight into whether or not the economy is in a healthy state or not. Mm. Well, it does. I mean, we, so we deal with a range of, of matters. It'll be large-scale retrenchments, yeah. so which is a, a almost a – uh, an indicator of where we are. Um, on the up, we deal with recruitment. So, so when it's good, we help employers with incentive plans and recruitment. When it's bad, unfortunately, we help them restructure their businesses to survive. So we see all aspects, uh, the, the, both sides of the cycle, if you will. 
Um, we also obviously deal with people who have been unfairly dismissed in atrocious circumstances who, who were removed because, for instance, they blew the whistle yeah. on some sort of crime. And, uh, and so that, that's particularly satisfying to help someone in those circumstances where, where they were doing the right thing and they were dismissed for that reason. Or people who were victimized because of their gender uh, or because a woman chose to be pregnant. Mm-hmm. Those sort of matters um, uh, are, are, are very important to prosecute. Very important. I, I would imagine also that you, you get to see some unscrupulous activity. Mm. And and that must be quite enlightening too, because the human nature—you you think you know something about the way people behave—and I think sometimes people do take advantage of of relationships, whether it's from an employer or an employee's point of view, yes. well, and sometimes I, in partnerships, and sometimes in 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 uh, the structure of businesses. So so we we certainly do act for people who have been unfairly treated, and yeah. and one one it boggles the mind to think that an employee would ever contemplate getting away with that type of behavior. Um, my, my clients typically, I'm, I'm happy to say, I've not been asked to, to defend matters which, which, uh, which are of that. Maybe they just don't come to me because they know who I am. But the point is that uh, we strive to give advice to a client which, which is, these are your rights, these are your obligations, and we, we would suggest that you follow those, those, those routes. Where, when it comes to employees who have been um, unfairly dismissed, we, we obviously um, take those employers who aren't our clients to task. Right. Mm. Um, how do you think when you, when you look at it, and, and perhaps this is a figurative thing, when you look at the relations between labor and, and, and uh, employers, do you think in South Africa we've, we've done much to improve the balance, to make it a little more equal? Or do you think it's tipped in one direction? It, you know, there's, there's so many facets to the employment community or landscape in South Africa. So it depends where you look. If you're looking in sort of the financial sector or the, the very sophisticated sector where you have highly skilled or semi-skilled employees, then you'll find that the, the bargaining level is far more equal. Mm. But then you look in, in, in sectors where there's high level of manual labor, for instance, or labor intensive. So we're talking farms or factories. Farms, factories, um, those sort of areas. You, you do find that there is a, there is a, an un, not an unfairness, but certainly the power vests with the employer. Mm. There's a huge amount of power still there. Um, and, uh, and, and so, yes, I would think in those circumstances, not necessarily, um, Fair to say that the bargaining power of the of the partners in that relationship are on an equal level. Sounds like great work. It sounds like the kind of, of information that will certainly benefit me. Um, people who who are either looking for a job, people who found a job, and people who want to leave a job. So there's there's you know ticking all those boxes. Um, thank you very much, Jacques, for your time. It's uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Jacques van Veek is a director in labour and employment at Worksman's in Cape Town. Um, it's really, it's the most interesting stuff. Labor law is how we all earn our keep. Thank you very much. Thank you. Worksman's Attorneys is a proudly South African corporate and commercial law firm with over 100 years of experience. With over 200 lawyers practicing in over 22 diverse areas of law, they're able to contend with current topical matters and use their expertise to your advantage. 
In this series of podcasts, we will explore how the law affects you. This is CliffCentral.com.